Amen. Thank you, Jesus. It was a lot of fun yesterday. I'll describe the men's retreat as um, a lot of sweat, a lot of food, some tears, a little bit of pain. All right, so that's what it was. You should certainly sign up next year. Uh, It's going to be awesome. No, but it really was a joy, and if you're able to come, we had young adult men and family men that were there, and and it was just a joy to get to gather together. And, you know, if you're a lady in the house, you may not understand why guys want to go kind of wrestle around and eat food and grunt and do these types of things. But it actually is really bonding, okay? And so, uh, uh, guys, if you couldn't come next year, we'll let you know about it early. But we'd love for you to come. It's an amazing time. Before we jump into the message, also, uh, we have World Mandate, as you guys have heard before, if you don't. If you don't know what World Mandate is, it really is a conference that is pulling together the movement of churches that are the Antioch churches. We have 27, 28 churches in the U.S. We have over 70 teams and church plants around the world, so nearly 100, 100 different teams and churches everywhere, and we gather together once a year as a family to say, hey, this is our movement conference. We're committed to seeking Jesus and figuring out what does it look like for us in our day to not only have our own lives changed, but, but to be part of changing the world wherever we are. So that's what the conference is all about. We have amazing speakers and worship, and we're going to be one of the satellite locations where everything is live. The, uh, the speakers will, will, will be live streamed in. Everything else will be live here, and we want to pack this place out. So I think we got about 700 tickets, and uh, if you want to come, it's 40 bucks is the early bird special uh, deal, and that ends in two weeks. So if you want to pay 40 bucks, give up a few Chick-fil-A's and Starbucks, you'll be there. Um, we'd love to have you. It's February 2nd through 3rd, and if you've never come, I would strongly suggest you come and actually invite your parents, because you may be going home for Thanksgiving and talking about this church you're going to. They're like, what kind of church do you go to? How do they do baptisms? And you want to go on what kind of mission trip? And they're, and they're going to have these questions. Hey, look, Mom and Dad, just come to World Mandate. We'll hang out. You can sleep on my couch. Just kidding. You need to give up your bed for your mom and dad, and you sleep on the couch and come for that weekend, all right? It's going to be great. All right. Thank you, Jesus. Well, today um, we are, uh, I didn't really know what to call this message, so I'm just calling it this, the heart of thankfulness, all right? So, um, so we, we decided we wanted to do just a standalone message, really, that was going to be geared towards us. We go home for Thanksgiving and trying to to, to, in a way, engage our hearts. We're wrapping up a semester, whether you're a student or a family, we all kind of go with the ebbs and flows of the school system, and so we're all kind of winding down. The holidays are here. You're going to get a few days off from work, hopefully, but I wanted to start out by just sharing a little bit of history of Thanksgiving, all right? In the early 1600s, a group of people from Nottinghamshire, England, suffered <clears throat> difficult persecution because they dissented from the Church of England. The Church of England at the time was the ruling church, and you had to actually adhere to it. There wasn't all different denominations. There was the Church of England denomination. And so these folks were not adhering to that, and so therefore they were called separatists. Well, William Bradford was part of this group, and in regards to the persecution they were suffering, this is what he wrote. The church members were hunted and persecuted on every side. So as their former afflictions were as flea-bitings, in comparison of these which now came upon them. For some were taken and clapped up in prison. Others had their houses watched night and day, and hardly escaped their hands. Yet seeing themselves thus molested, and that there was no hope of their continuance there, 
but a joint consent, they resolved to go into the low countries, where they heard that there was freedom of religion for all men. William Bradford, one of the leaders of the separatists. Now, the separatist congregation decided to move from England because of the immense persecution and go to a country they had heard, Holland, also known as the Netherlands, that they had heard actually had freedom of religion. You could practice whatever religion you wanted to. And in Europe, that was very odd at the time because most places you were either Catholic or Protestant or something else. And so um, they went to Holland. So in 1607, they were there, and they settled in a little town called Leiden. All right? And they were there for 13 years, but life didn't initially get any easier. As foreigners there, they were deprived of a chance at the best jobs. They struggled to maintain even a low standard of living. And the times were tough. But what caused them to really move away from Holland eventually instead of staying was that although they had religious freedom, one person wrote this. They said, many of their children, by the great promiscuity of youth in that country and the temptations of the place, were drawn away by evil examples into extravagant and dangerous courses. Old English translation is, our youth were being led into all sorts of things, whether it be sexual activity, drunkenness, worshiping other things, and they were losing their children, losing their teenagers in this Dutch culture that didn't really have much of a moral compass, and so therefore they were losing them, and they thought, wow, life is tough here. We can't even get jobs. We don't know the language. We are foreigners in this land, but if we go back to England, it's going to be the same old. They're actually waiting for us to return to capture us again. So they had a bit of a problem. They were stuck with not many options. So in 1620, many of that congregation, the separatists, decided to emigrate to America, to the New World. So the separatists settled in a town called Plymouth, New England. And in 1840, someone discovered William Bradford's original phrase describing the saints that had left Leiden, Holland, to travel aboard the Mayflower to the New World. When they left there, he wrote this, that goodly and pleasant city, which had been their resting place for nearly 12 years. But they knew they were pilgrims and looked not much on those things, but lifted up their eyes to ye heavens, their dearest country, and quieted their spirits. As they were getting on the Mayflower, right? You've learned that story in school. They get on board. You think it's all fun and games. Everyone's got their nice little... No. People died crossing. People got immensely sick. They showed up, and then more people died. And in fact, more people died than actually lived when they came over to the New World. It was harsh. They showed up in the winter. A little bit of bad timing there. But they didn't really know where they were going. They didn't have GPS, right? So they showed up to this New World. They're trying to figure it out. And yet, here they are experiencing hardship in England, hardship in Holland. Now they're like, we're going to take a risk. Because it's worth taking the risk to find a place that maybe could give us an opportunity to actually express our faith, to actually raise our youth in the way that we want to do it. And we're willing to risk our lives for that opportunity. That's who the separatists are. The separatists are, are pilgrims. You see, Bradford, William Bradford, who ended up becoming the governor and the leader of this group for a while, he was echoing a passage from the Bible when he wrote those words. Found in Hebrews 11, 13 through 16. This is in the New King James Version. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. 
And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. This is what Bradford is writing about. These separatists decided to journey across to this country, which we know now as America, for that hope. For that hope, saying, God, we fix our eyes on heaven, but yet we're going to try to find out if there's a way that we can have a society and a people where we can freely worship you on earth. But you see, what the pilgrims experienced in Holland was really what Paul was writing about um, in Romans 1, 20, 20, 21. He said, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. You see, they had been immersed in a secular Dutch culture. And in the midst of that, they had also experienced the hypocrisy of the Church of England. They would say, we love you on one hand, but if you disagree, you're dead. They had experienced a lot of hardship. They had experienced a people that said, oh yeah, we believe in God, but they weren't really honoring God with their lives. Does that ring a bell in America at all? You know anybody who says, hey, I'm a Christian, you're like, I don't see it. Maybe that's been you. Maybe that was you. Maybe that is you. Maybe it's someone at your workplace who's like, man, I love going to church. And you're like, really? Because I don't know how much of an effect it's having on you. Man, I love the Bible. Awesome. Are you following any of it? No, but it's a really good book to read. <laughs> right? But you see, the, the separatists, they had these challenges. But they wanted to be a people that were not able only to know God, but they actually wanted to worship Him and live out their lives without the restrictions that they had experienced. See, to be separate, to be separatists, <laughs> to be set apart... In this world. That's why they labeled them as separatists. Remember, Christians got labeled like that too. These little, these, these little Christ followers, right? It wasn't a term of endearment, right? It was a knock and oh, look at these little people following Jesus around. These separatists were labeled with that. <clears throat> so to be set apart, really, it is to be a pilgrim. I mean, that's what they took a pilgrimage across the ocean. 397 years ago, they sailed across the Atlantic in hopes of establishing a city and a country that would be different, that would allow freedom of expression and freedom to actually raise your children, your families in the way you would like. But you know, that desire and that hope 400 years ago, um, it still hasn't been fulfilled completely today. Do we have any problems in America? Yeah, we got a lot. Because their desire was that it would be a place a free place for every man, woman, and child, regardless of their skin color, regardless of their age, regardless of their class, regardless of where they've come from. And we don't have that fully. It's better than a lot of countries, but it's not the fullness of what God even wants. So we have a challenge for us, right? In our own country, we have our youth going astray, right? If you don't know this, if you're a college student in the room, I was reading through this article last week, and 25% of college professors are professing atheists or agnostics. 25% of the college professors, that's an average across the country. All right, only 6 to 7% of the U.S. population claims those same beliefs. 
which means there's a disproportionate amount of professors in comparison to the actual population in our country, which means if they're the ones leading your classes all the time and they're the ones telling you how to do things and instructing you, there's probably going to be people that are taking down that very same path, right? You yourself may have been challenged in school, even at A&M as a quote-unquote conservative university. Go and take a straw poll of how many professors actually are committed to walking with Jesus. I know several professors, and they would tell you, it is a challenging environment. You kind of have to be a bit on the edge with your faith because it's not encouraged in the university, even though we're one of the most conservative, public, Christian universities, right? But it's still very challenging. You know, according to a, a survey that Gallup had done one and Barna had done one and their averages came out to about 87% of Americans say they believe in God, whatever that is. A very vague question, right? And then 52% of them say they believe the Bible is like God's word, right? So about half our country. But here's the interesting. 36% say they believe people should actually live by what the Bible says. Wait a second. So like 9 out of 10 people, hey, yeah, I believe in God. Sure. But let me ask you a question. Does believing in God count? No. Because Jesus said the only way you're going to know the Father is you come through me. So you can say, hey, God, he's out there. Hey, but you know what? He said, look, you've got to believe in my son and what Jesus did on the cross for you. Forgiveness of sins, dying on the cross for you and me. You've got to understand that God is here and actually you're way over here. And the only way you're ever going to have access to him is through his son, Jesus. That is it. And that's a reality. And that's a humbling reality, isn't it? To realize no matter what I do, no matter how hard I work, no matter what I say or how I perform in life, I will never be able to have access to God the Father, the creator of the universe, unless I go through his son, Jesus. There's only one narrow road to get to the Father, and it's through his son. And that's the reality. But people say, oh, yeah, I believe in God. Just like, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. Or, yeah, I think the Bible's really good, but I don't really want to apply it because it gets a little difficult to obey, right? We're all really good at reading stuff and taking information, but what about following through on that? You know, the, the, the youth are being challenged in our nation with divorce rates and the challenges of even the home and, and, and many single parents in our country, even in our church. They are trying to raise a family and doing an amazing job, but that's never been God's plan A, that, that homes are run by one parent. God's plan A is that homes are run by mom and dad. Figuring it out. And many of you in this room didn't have that experience growing up. And I wish every single one of you did. Because that's God's desire. Something went wrong along the way. and You can't go back in time. And I understand that. But in our nation, we have many problems that are a lot of times beneath the surface. And usually it's only when it hits a boiling point when we start to see them, right? But there's challenges in our country. There's religious persecution that exists I like to put it this way, we don't have the persecution that, that you would have in Iran or Saudi Arabia or in China, different places in the world, but it does exist. Let me kind of put it this way. In America, you're free to be a Christian as long as you don't actually live out your faith or vote your faith or take a stand in relation to your faith or believe that others should even embrace your faith. In other words, you can be privately engaging, but you must remain socially irrelevant, right? Anyone ever heard, hey, man, I follow Jesus, and hey, that's cool for you. Keep it private, man. Keep it out of the workplace. Keep it off my street. Keep it out of Chick-fil-A. No, they wouldn't say that there, but 
You know, keep, keep, keep it out of places. No. Do you know that our faith was never meant to be private? If it was, then why did Jesus ever make himself public? Right? Why do you say, hey, all right, go, go, go out two by two, proclaim the kingdom of God, heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons, cleanse, do, go for it, bring the good news of Jesus, wash people's feet, love here, go here. Why did Paul plant churches? Why did, no, it is meant to be very public. Public does not mean that we control, which is what's happened in Christianity's history. There's been a history and a lineage, which is why many Europeans are totally disengaged from the church because of how the church acted for hundreds and hundreds of years, which is very controlling, very manipulative, and very counter-Bible, right? It's kind of tough to really have trust with people when they say, actually, you can't read it, only I can. I can interpret it, and you just listen to what I say. Like, can I fact-check you? No. And if you try to question me again, you're in prison. That's kind of a tough church system, wouldn't you say? That's kind of how it ran for like a thousand years in Europe, which is why you go to Europe, you're like, Hey, what do you think about church? You're like, oh, don't even get me started. Don't talk to him about church then. Talk to him about Jesus. Come on, bro. What beef you got with Jesus? I mean, he's a good dude. He's perfect. You got anything bad to say about him? Talk about Jesus. Don't talk about things that sometimes men and women have screwed up over time. Talk about Jesus. We're not trying to get people to adhere to some organization. We're trying to get them to adhere to him. And when they get in line with Jesus and they understand, oh, there's a point to the church. It's the body of Christ. But they don't get Christ. How do you want to be connected to the body of Christ? Right? So the pilgrims had this desire, like in Psalm 105.1, it says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. They had a desire to live out their faith freely. But they recognized the youth drifting and different persecutions, problems happening. And so they said, we're going to take a trip across the ocean to establish a new culture. And in order to establish a new culture, you actually have to initiate change. You have to initiate the change. Culture doesn't change by you just hoping that it does. So the culture of your family that you're about to go visit at Thanksgiving, if what's normal for your family is to have the kind of cutting remarks or jabbing little things or slander or gossip, or what's normal for your family is you guys just gorge on food and watch football all day and pass out on the couch. If, if that's your norm, if, 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 your, if your norm is to make mom do everything and everyone sits around and just talks so she does everything, that offering, right? Like if your norm is, well, I'm going home and, you know, my, my brother's got a kid now, but I don't have any, so I'm just not going to deal with him. No, no, your norm needs to be a Christian norm. A Christian norm at Thanksgiving looks something like this, doing things that they're not used to you doing that are actually going to honor and bless them. So you're not good at cooking? Well, this is a great time to start. Hey, Mom, I love to help. You can't cook? I know, but I'm ready to learn. Right? Heck, I take the trash out. Hey, what can I do? Are there enough beds for one? Maybe I'll take the couch. You can have my bed. Grandma and Grandpa are coming. What if we started acting like Christians because we are them? Right? Like, there's, thanks, there, there's American Thanksgiving, and there's Christian Thanksgiving. Christian Thanksgiving is actually being thankful towards God, which we'll get to in just a moment. And it's actually acting like we actually are people who are thankful, who have been bought with a price, who have, who have been loved on, sacrificed everything for so we can have a relationship with God the Father. And therefore, we act out of that way. We respond that way, right? And our motives are pure. It is, I'm coming home to outserve everybody at Thanksgiving. Because I know people are blessed when I serve them. 
And let me just say, step one, initiating change in a culture is serving. Jesus came to serve, not to be served. And then gave his life up as a ransom for many. He was serving for years before he died on the cross. Now that was the culmination of a lot of stuff. But he served, he lived a life that was worth following. Any great leader outserves his people. Jesus is the greatest leader the world has ever known. Yet he never got some award or some accolades. The applause he got the next day, they were running him out of town. But Jesus served. He even got down and washed his disciples' feet and trying to get something across to them. This is the way I want you to change the world. It's not by lording it over them. It's by getting under your people and serving them. And I would implore you guys at Thanksgiving to be those that actually say, I'm going to change the culture of my family, and I'm going to serve people well. You know, last week at a, after our baptism service, one of the dads came up to me and he said, hey, um, I got to tell you, I've never seen anything like that. He's visiting from out of town. He's been in church like most of his life. And he said, I've never seen anything like that. He said, I got a question for you, though. How do you get all those people to share their testimony like that, to be so raw? I'm thinking, how do I get them to do that? I'm thinking, okay, I see what his question is. He thinks there's some, like, program or system that we have here at the church that, like, forces people to do something. I said, okay, let me answer your first question. We have the application. They submit it. We make sure that people actually know Jesus before they get baptized. We talk it through with them. Then we ask them to write out a testimony that they can then share in front of a group. We'd love to hear the 20-minute version. We don't have time for that, so we can hear the shorter version. So we ask them, hey, if you feel comfortable sharing a testimony, please share it. If you don't, that's great. Whatever. So some people share a longer one. Some share for 10 seconds, and we don't, we're great. Whatever. But I told them, I said, that's what we do. But I said, you want to know the real answer to your question is this. We don't make anyone do anything. But we've created a culture where vulnerability is celebrated. If you start celebrating instead of condemning vulnerability, you'll see a change in your church too. Yesterday, we're at the men's retreat. We get to the end of the day, and we've gone through this whole day, and we just say, hey, 15 minutes before we end our day, just guys get up and share a testimony. And oh my goodness, every guy that gets up and shares, one guy gets up and shares, and he's He's just sharing his heart about different things, total life transformation in his life. And um, this happened over the last couple of years, and he's just pouring his guts out. I mean, sharing stuff, you're like, oh, did he say that, you know? But you know what our response was as a group of 65 men? Every time he, like, shared, shared another sin struggle that he's had victory over now, or he exposed something, we were like, yeah, come on, bro. We're like, come on, do it again. There is no one condemning him, even though on paper, it's a pretty naughty list. It's a pretty big black mark of what he's done. But he's saying, I have majorly messed up my life. But just this afternoon, praying with some guys, I took that shame and all that condemnation and I chucked it back in the darkness where it belongs. And I'm walking the light. And that's what we just did. Except we stood up and yelled through all a bunch of dudes, you know? And we were like, yeah! We're like, who's next? Get up there. <laughs> and no one in that room was like, oh, should I share? I don't know if I can share. What are they going to think of me? <laughs> but they may have thought like that at 8 a.m. After about 10 hours of wrestling around, sweating together, eating food, seeing other guys share their stories, all of a sudden you're like, man, it's no fun to hide stuff. 
I actually feel pretty bad hiding things. Multiple guys said, I was feeling anxious and all this stuff. And then I brought in the light. I got freedom. Can I just implore you guys again? Um, we don't celebrate hidden sin. Because God doesn't. But God really does celebrate and bring it to the light. That's why the Pharisees couldn't understand Jesus and his ministry. Can't believe you're eating tax collectors. Can't believe you're having a meal with these sinners. What they didn't get is the whole reason for him coming was actually to expose the darkness and bring the light and say, I'm going to celebrate when this tax collector repents. I'm going to celebrate. You guys are over here trying to judge everyone. I'm not doing that. But if you'd actually celebrate people get real and vulnerable, you know it at your church too, they'll start being open. People stop playing the Christian church game. Everybody looks good and smiles but actually hates their life. They'll actually come real. If they hate their life, they'll tell you about it, and you're going to pray for them, they're going to get delivered from them, they're going to get free, and they're going to start walking out with them. Right? So change comes by starting to serve those around you and being vulnerable. You know, um, but that desire to serve people and to bless people, and even as you think about going home for Thanksgiving, I want you to know that desire is not something you can buy. It's not something that you can muster up or conjure. Uh, just like Thanksgiving. Like, to, 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 to be thankful in your heart, it's not something you just kind of, I'll just, yeah, I'll just kind of figure out how to be thankful or whatever. That's not God's plan. God's plan is to actually receive what he's done in your life, and at that place then, you're actually thankful. Because it's, you ever ask the question like, what am I actually thankful for? Right? I mean, like, what am I thankful for? Hey, thanks. Thanks for what? We say it to people. Thanks for opening the door. Thanks for the great meal. Thanks for my birthday present. We say thank you for those things. But with God's friends, we forget, wait a second. He's done way more than give me a nice birthday gift. He's done way more, right? So let's look at Exodus 34 to figure out who God is. Because it starts with God's nature. If you know who God is and how he describes himself, then you're going to know what he's really like. So Exodus 34, let me set this up for you before we jump into it. Um, the Israelites, you know their story. It's a very long story. They were in Egypt. They were slaves. Moses is raised up by God. He sets them free. Ten plagues happen. Pharaoh and the gang finally say, okay, enough is enough. And then they say, actually, just kidding. We want you back. So now they come after him. Then the Red Sea gets parted. The miracle, they go across the Red Sea. The ocean crashes on the uh, Egyptian army. The Israelites are free. But they don't have a homeland yet. They're on their way to the promised land, which now is going to be a much longer journey. So now they're in the midst of the wilderness, wandering around in circles half the time, and they're trying to find the promised land. In the midst of all of this, God calls Moses up to go to a mountain, speaks to him privately. He then gives him these, these, these words written on these stone tablets, these Ten Commandments. Moses comes down excited to tell the people, hey guys, look at what God has spoken for us. This is how we're supposed to live. This is how we're supposed to do life. He's providing for us a new promised land. We're going to go to a new home, a new country, and a new way of living. Here we go comes down, to his surprise, there's a stupid, fat, golden cow sitting down at the bottom of the mountain that everybody's worshiping. And he's like, you have got to be kidding me. And he crashes, he throws these tablets on the ground, super frustrated, and then God carries out some vengeance on the people that day to make them understand there is one God. You cannot worship God and a golden cow. We can't either. You know that? You can't worship some person from American Idol or some artist or some maroon and white team. 
You can't worship. God is a very jealous God. Do not ever forget that. He does not share. That rightful place is his. If you don't want to give it to him, that's going to be bad for you. But I'm telling you right now, God is a jealous God, and he makes it very clear. In fact, that day, Moses, in the moment of this righteous anger, calls out and says, Who is with me in the one true God? Several thousand Levites come to his side. He says, Draw your swords. And that day, they go and slaughter 3,000 of their own people to make the point. This is not okay. And they slaughtered those that were worshiping and dancing around the golden cow. So God's a really serious God. He's loving. <laughs> and he's also a God that is meant to be worshipped and has his rightful place. So take that in the context. 18, 19 chapters later, as God has now spelled out more of how he wants the people of Israel to live, he calls Moses back up to a mountain for round two. Goes to Mount Sinai, and this is what it says in verse 4. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. So pause. The Lord's descending out of the heavens and the clouds now up on this mountain. That's a moment. It's just Moses. And he said, I don't want anyone else separate, but just Moses. So Moses now is there up on the mountain with God. And this is what he says. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation? Now we're going to unpack this. But this passage would probably be one of the greatest descriptions of the nature of God in the entire Bible. He is describing himself. This ain't Paul describing him. This ain't someone else writing. This is God descending on a mountain, and he's describing himself to Moses, who's known him for a while. And by the way, this encounter with God, Moses is up, it says, for 40 days and nights up on this mountain without eating or drinking anything. That's a long fast, just so you know. I've done like a 12-day one before, not 40. That's a long time. Moses is in the presence of God, and this is what God, he wants Moses to know this. Before he gets into stone tablets and everything else, this is my nature. So everything I'm about to command you to do, Moses, I want you to know that you've got to know who I am first before you guys start changing your behaviors. Before you start changing your ways, you got to know his ways. So God's describing himself. He describes himself as merciful and gracious. God is our heavenly father. And you know, our earthly parents are supposed to be reflecting him. You know, I thought I was pretty merciful and gracious until I started having children. <laughs> and then I was like, okay, got a long ways to go. Because <laughs> I thought I was a pretty good guy, you know. I'm pretty patient, pretty Oh, but then children, you're just like, okay, 
that guy told me a long time ago, if, it, if you want to be closer to Jesus, have kids. Because it just kind of narr- it just forces you to all your selfish stuff just starts, oh, I was really, sel- I mean, I thought I was a pretty unselfish guy. Because like, wow, there's a lot of things I'm having to adjust right now, and my body is overreacting, you know. It's like, I just want to watch football, and without, but there's crying baby, and what am I going to do, you know. Or I just, I just want to have a meal at a restaurant with my wife, like we used to for an hour, and talk. And now we can't stay here for 10 minutes because screaming baby and poopy diaper, and then, you know. That's when they're little. Then they get older, then we're at a restaurant, and it's like, one of my kids takes a cup of water and dumps on the lady behind me, and she's like, oh, and she's seven years old, and we'd apologize, and the guy got really angry, like, oh, I'm so sorry, I don't do the crap, what are you talking about? Just, I mean, dad life, you know? What do you do for a living? I don't know. I don't, uh, what do you do? You know? I'm a pastor at that church over there. You know? But with my kids, it's like, you have to discipline them. But sometimes we give them mercy. Sometimes we'll say, hey, buddy, do you know what you did wrong? Yeah, I know I did, Daddy. So you know what? Mom and Daddy decided we're going to give you mercy right now. Because God gives us mercy. And I, you deserve discipline, but I'm going to give you mercy right now. So we just need to hear that that's who God is. He actually gives us some mercy a lot more than we know. He is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger. He's patient with us, you know. He's not like all those false gods. Most world religions believe that their God or higher power is kind of a one-strike-and-you're-out policy. It's very intense, and if your good works don't add up in the end of your life, then you're toast. I remember talking to a Muslim man when I was in Europe a couple summers ago, and we are talking, and he was from Afghanistan. And I said... So do you ever not pray five times a day? He said, oh, no, no, never. I always pray five times a day. And, you know, my assumption was he probably had missed a few days now that he's like 40 years old, you know. But in the Muslim faith, to not adhere to the certain tenets is like, I mean, you are out. They're, they're, like, if you say I pray three times a day, I mean, you're out. You're kicked out of the, I mean, you're, it's serious. You would never admit you don't pray five times a day. Never would say that if you're a devout Muslim. And that's the way it goes for most four religions. There's such an intensity with this is the way it has to be. There's grace and mercy are foreign terms. Those aren't found in others. But in the Christian faith with God, that's who he is. He is gracious and merciful, and he is slow to anger. Because when we make a mistake, what he says is, come to me. When you, when you mess something up, come and confess it. Bring it in the light. Come clean. He is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You ever seen a volcano erupt? You probably weren't up close, you wouldn't be here, right? <laughs> but if you've seen it on TV or Mount St. Helens or something, a volcano, that lava, I'm pretty sure like most trees don't stand up against or have a chance against hot lava. They catch on fire, they burn to the ground, they get wiped out, right? Or a mudslide, you picture that? That is what God's love is like. Literally, when his love is poured out, it flows and it is fierce and nothing will withstand it. God's love is not conditional. It's unconditional. It is limitless. That's who he is. He's saying, Moses, my love is limitless. So is my faithfulness. It is consistent. He says, keeping steadfast love for the thousands. Some translations say for thousands of generations. I think that's what he's hinting at. For thousands. But what's interesting is he says, 
his love carries on for the thousand generations, but then he says about the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. You know what he's saying there? My love goes to a thousand generations. That sin just goes to a few. His point is, my love supersedes even your sin, even your guilt and your shame. I can cover it. I can wash it. I can deal with it. It says, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. I learned this last week. Those are the three words in Hebrew for sin. Transgression, iniquity, and sin. Three different words describing that. Why is he saying that? Because he's saying that my love, my forgiveness, I can actually deal with all that sin. I'm going to tell you, here's the whole package, which means there's no sin that anyone in this room has ever committed or done that he can't wash away. There's no sin that anyone in your family, he can't come to Jesus on Thursday, Thanksgiving Day, and say, I actually want to repent. I want to follow the same Jesus you're following. There is no one beyond the reach of God. He's saying, I can deal with all of it. That's who he is. Maybe you're sitting here thinking that God can't forgive you of something. He's describing himself saying, hey, my mercy and my grace and my love is available in measure beyond what you can ever imagine and way more than you actually need. And for some of us going home on Thanksgiving, you're excited to go. Some of you aren't excited to go. But you know what? You have an opportunity to bring the light of the gospel into your homes. But I want you to be thankful, not just because it's Thanksgiving. I want you to be thankful because you then again realize as we look today, this is who God says he is. This is, I'm, you know why I'm thankful to God? Because he is merciful and gracious towards me. I'm thankful because he's slow to anger. And I've seen it a lot of times in my life. I'm thankful because he is abounding in his steadfast love and faithfulness. I am thankful to God because he will keep that love for thousands of generations forever. I am thankful because he is forgiving of all my sins, the big and the small. That's why I'm thankful to God. And when you become thankful to God and you acknowledge, oh, this is why I'm truly thankful, then that thankfulness automatically starts welling up and flows out of you onto friends and family and coworkers. And you can't help but just communicate that and demonstrate that to them. This is our God. As the band makes your way up here, I just want to close with this. Um, you know, the holidays uh, can be challenging. And I just want to acknowledge that here in this room, that some of you guys have families that don't know Jesus. And um, yet, if you do, you have an opportunity to be salt and light again to them. Like I said earlier, you have an opportunity, just like the pilgrims coming to this new world to change a culture. You have an opportunity to maybe take a little pilgrimage back home. And you're trying to change the culture in your family. And your family doesn't go to church. Or your family maybe doesn't know Christ. Or maybe they did and they kind of turned away from the church or stopped going. Or you feel like they've kind of become lukewarm or just not really that caring anymore about who God is. Or doing stuff that's just off. Don't go in judging them, condemning them. Go home serving them. Go home loving them. Go home and try to make space to actually create some opportunities for this conversation. And, you know, just like at the men's retreat, people open up when you open up first. A lot of those guys wouldn't have shared if others didn't already share earlier in the day. And they said, wait a second, being vulnerable is actually cool. <laughs> it's not cool. All the stuff I've done isn't cool. 
We're not celebrating the sin. We're celebrating you bringing the sin into light. And when your family sees that, they, I don't know how long you've been to this church or what God's done in your life in the last few months, but what if you came home and you were like a little different? You're like, man, you actually like make your bed. What happened? <laughs> wow, you're actually cleaning the dishes. You're not even good at doing that, you know? Well, never seen her break my, my nice china, whatever. No, mom, I got it, I got it, I can do it, you know? But whatever it is, it may be simple, maybe big, but go home and bring life. Do not allow the environment to overwhelm you. Do not allow for people's negativity or critical things or whatever to run you over. Remember, all it takes is one light in a room to light it up. The spirit in me is greater than he who is in the world. It's the spirit of God. Which means in you there's more power to bring life and goodness. It can be one versus a thousand and you can win. For those of you that are in the room and you're going home and your family's walking with Jesus, they know the Lord, and I would just encourage you to encourage them. There's not a Christian I know who doesn't need encouragement. Once you go home, just be purposeful and just encourage them. Hey, mom, dad, I want to bless you guys. I want to read a scripture over you. Can I share a note with you? I just realized how thankful I really am for you how you've treated me and how you've raised me and cared for me. You don't know how far that goes into a parent. No matter what your age is, moms and dads always need to hear from their children, hey, thank you. Thanks for loving me. Thanks for caring for me. The last thing I want to share is just be our Thanksgiving challenge, all right? The college ministry, if you're part of the college ministry, I think Mitchell, Mitchell kind of issued this challenge out to you guys, but um, I heard it and said, man, let's do this as a whole church. So here's my challenge to you, all right? So put in your phones or write it down right here. It's okay to do it. Thanksgiving morning, Thursday morning, I want you to wake up and write out 50 things you're thankful for. And you may think 50 is a lot, but I bet once you get started, it actually won't be enough. You'll say, well, I keep going. You can go past 50 if you want to. You don't have to stop. But write down 50. I'm thankful that God loves me. I'm thankful that I have breath in my lungs. I'm thankful that I have two feet and two hands. I'm thankful I have a house. I'm thankful for my dog. I'm, I'm, thankful, for any, I'm thankful for anything. I'm thankful that my friends forgave me. I'm thankful that I have an opportunity for education. I'm thankful that I have a job. I'm thankful that I have children. I'm thankful. You just keep going. You just start saying, God, I'm thankful. Because the Bible says a thankful heart prepares the way. And whatever you're wanting to see happen in your life, it starts with an attitude of gratitude. It starts with an attitude that says, I am thankful, God. Regardless of my circumstances, I will be thankful. I will trust you. And I'll be thankful for my family, even though they're hard to deal with. But God, would you allow me to be salt and light in the midst of a challenging place? Or God, would you allow me to up the ante, even encourage my family and my friends to be more engaged with Jesus, to be more committed to who he is than they were right now? Wherever you are, God wants to use you. So relax, sleep in, and have fun this week. But be focused and loving and be a light. Man, once you stand as we close and work, or ministry team, make your way up here if you would. If you're here this morning, you need anything. Hey, I just need prayer. For I just want someone to pray for me. Pray over me. Pray for my family. If you're feeling like, wow, God's doing something in my heart. I've been really ungrateful, really critical. I don't want to be like that anymore. Have someone just pray for you and say, hey, let's break that off your life. Let's get rid of it. Let's walk in freedom. Let's walk out of here with getting the whatever it is that's bugging you or holding you down. They're sending you to confess. Bring it to the light. These guys would love to pray over you. They're going to celebrate people being vulnerable and real. We don't keep cue cards of all your sins. We toss them to the feet of Jesus and say, yes, he's taking it for you. 
But whatever you got, you need anything this morning, come up, let these guys pray for you. Jesus, we thank you, we love you, we trust you. Lord, we just ask that, um, that today, that you would move through us again and that you would challenge us again to be a people that are thankful, that are committed to you. We trust you in Jesus' name.